Well, this is a uh, significant summer at the Jones home, uh, more significant than usual. Some events have come together this summer that make it very memorable. Uh, Today, my parents are moving to Guadalajara, Mexico, where they plan to live for at least two years. This, uh, just in a few weeks, we are going to be moving our firstborn daughter, our firstborn child altogether, off to college. And then amidst all of this, we are also celebrating 20 years of marriage in a few weeks. So 20 years of marriage, that's dos decades, all right? A score, as Lincoln would say. And typically, if you would do anything for 20 years, you would go around town talking very confidently about your abilities in that particular area, right? So if you were an accountant, 20 years into your career, you'd be happy to go around town saying, yeah, I'm a pretty good accountant. We've done A, B, C, blah, blah, blah. If you're an electrician for 20 years, you go around town pretty confident about your skills in that particular area. Golf, whatever you want to put. 20 years gives you sort of confidence that you know what you're doing. Not so much in marriage, right? That 20 years into marriage, you don't go around town bragging about your husbandry skills, right? That there is a sense in which you never feel like you've gained a certain level of competency in marriage like you do in other aspects of your life. It just doesn't work that way. Or maybe it works for you. It doesn't for me. I'll just be speaking for myself today. But, you know, there's a lot of pictures that the Bible uses to describe marriage. And I think the most uh, helpful one, to me at least, is the image of a garden. That marriage is like gardening. Now, I am not a gardener type, okay? But my wife is. You just heard read scripture. She she grew up on 20 acres, and her dad is a forester. Like, they know how to grow things. She's a 4-H babe, all right? That's the way she was raised. They know how to grow and nurture and take the time, put the sweat in, and do it, okay? I was raised on Cosby Show and Seinfeld, okay? I really don't know how to garden very well. I go get the gardening stuff so she can garden. But some of you really know and appreciate what it takes to, whether it's a rose garden or you're trying to grow tomatoes, you you know what it takes. It takes work, right? Homegrown tomatoes, fresh blooming roses just don't happen, all right? It takes sweat. It takes time. It takes inconvenience. It takes money. It takes everything. But at the end of it, there's something beautiful, right? the sweet taste of that homegrown tomato, that, that, the smell and look of that beautiful rose, that you, you work at it because you know what the end product is going to be. It's going to be something beautiful. And, of course, I think that's probably a great way to think about marriage. Marriage is like gardening. It is work, but we, we engage in this work because we really do think that the product is something beautiful and worthy of pursuing. But there are those moments where it just feels like work. And, and you're tired, and you've had a long day, and you don't want to put in the work. And that's what marriage often feels like. In fact, we would love to have a garden where we get to enjoy the fruit without any other labor, right? That's why we go to the grocery store. <laughs> Somebody else has done all the work. We just get to enjoy the product of the work. And that's the way we would love for marriage to be, and that's why marriage frustrates us. That's why, that's why many of us uh, perhaps even give up on the idea of marriage altogether. Because marriage, like gardening, involves a certain 
level of work. You know, we also are doing uh, marriage here in a culture that has mixed feelings about marriage. Statistics and studies show that in the Western world, the country with the highest view of marriage is America. Americans have a higher view of marriage than any other country in the Western world. They believe it's worth pursuing, it's a lifelong commitment, and all these other things. But America also has the highest divorce rate of all the countries surveyed. And so we live in this tension of, yes, we want roses. Yes, we want homegrown tomatoes. Work, not so much. No, no, not interested. Not interested in having to go out there after a long day and pull some weeds in that garden, okay? But I would like for there to be a nice garden. And that's the way many of us in this culture feel about marriage. We want, we want this ideal, but we don't want to surrender our independence and our own self-pursuits. And so we live in this conflict. But this morning, we're going to look at this passage, and what we're going to discover is that the Apostle Paul says that in marriage, if it's going to be what God designed it to be, it does involve work, especially the work of giving that this is the work of marriage, that there's a mutual giving to each other that has to take place for marriage to thrive. And in fact, the picture of marriage is the picture of God's relationship to us. How does God work to build his relationship with us? He gives. This is how he builds his relationship with us. He gives. He gives us this wonderful creation He gives us his son. He gives us his spirit. He gives, and that's how he works to build his relationship with us. And his way of relationship is the standard and source for our own. That if we're going to see our relationships build and thrive, it's going to be through the work of giving ourselves to one another. But what are we supposed to be giving? Well, in this passage this morning, I just want to briefly look at three things The Bible says we need to be giving to each other in marriage. And if you're not married this morning, you don't have to tune out because what the Bible says about marriage is true about your relationship with God and may be true and applicable to other relationships as well. But there's three things the Bible says that we need to be giving to each other. The first thing the Bible says we need to give to each other is love. We need to give love. Notice that in verse 25, especially the husband's, The Bible says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then again in verse 33, the last verse in the chapter, husbands, you also must love his wife. The Bible says love is what especially a husband must be giving. This is the work. This is what God calls us to in the garden of marriage is this giving of love. Now notice that for Paul, when he talks about love, It's not some abstract concept from like a Hallmark greeting card, okay? It's very concrete that when he describes love, he talks about it as something intentional, tangible, sacrificial. How do we know that? Well, he compares it to eating. He says, you don't want to know what love looks like? It's like how you think about food. He says that in the middle of the passage. I can relate to this because I think about food a lot. But, but he says that the husband must care for his wife as he does his own body, as he feeds it. Now think about how much you think about, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to get it? What time am I going to eat? 
You know, all these things, this intentionality that, that consumes our consciousness, Paul says that this is what it means to love. That it's as tangible as food, and it's as intentional as three meals a day. That you have to set out to go do it. If you're going to love, that's the kind of intentionality you got to have. Now, I speak, obviously, as one today who believes these things, not so much practices all these things of which I speak, but... But it took at least 13 years into marriage before I began to catch on to a few things about my wife. I'm just slow sometimes, okay? And, and one of those things was, you know, as many of you have heard of the five love languages. You know, uh, humans have one primary love language. Dogs have all five love languages. But, but we all typically process love in a particular way, and they categorize them into five. And my love language is typically time. I feel loved when people set aside time to spend with me. And so, you know, I think it's wonderful to have a weekend away, those things. That makes me feel special, makes me feel loved. But what do you tend to do, as I did and still do, is you try to give love to people in the ways that you'd like to receive love, right? And so time was special to me, so I thought this is, I'm going to show her how much I love her we're, we're gonna, I'm going to get a babysitter, go out, go out for, for dinner and, and those things. Get a babysitter, go out uh, for the weekend, those sorts of things. Time-oriented ways of expressing affection. And I'm sure she really appreciated it. She thought it was thoughtful. But then around year 10 and 11 into our marriage, she began to, to say things more explicitly to me about the ways that I was trying to show her affection. That she began to say, you know, if you ever thought about getting me something, this would be something that I would like to get. And she began to become more clear to me that time is not her love language. Gifts is her love language, okay? And I had been speaking gibberish for about 13 years. And so I finally, after about three years of her waving red flags, you know, in front of me day after day, uh, decided, you know, I should probably get her something. I bet that'd make her feel special. Um, and so I did. And I was amazed at the response that I got compared to other techniques I had tried to use. That in other words, when I began to think more intentionally, act more intentionally, maybe do things that were real unnatural to me, but things that would be more natural to her, then things changed in our marriage. Things got better. But that is the kind of love that Paul describes, right? It's intentional. It's thinking through things about, and not only thinking through, but it's sacrificial. Not how would I do this, but how would they like this to be done? How will they receive and process? Because Paul says that's the kind of love Christ shows. Christ doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, I love you all. Believe me when I say it. He doesn't send cards on special holidays, right? What does Christ do? He takes on flesh. He, he comes to dwell among us. He shares meals with us. He gives us bread and wine. He gives his own body and blood for us. He does intentional, tangible, sacrificial things for us. And the Bible says that's what love is. Love is not a sentiment. Love is tangible. It's in action that it is found. And so Paul says that's what we need to be giving each other. And of course... We will never love to the level that Christ loves us, but C.S. Lewis reminds us that the most godlike love is the love that is unwearied in giving. And this is what love is. It is a giving of ourselves to the other person. 
But there's a second thing that Paul says that we need to give to each other to have healthy marriages. We need to give love. But secondly, he says we need to give respect. Verse 33 again, he says, wives must respect her husband. So what is respect? Respect is valuing the other person and making them feel valued, giving them a a certain honor in, 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 in conveying that value to them. That, in other words, it is to highlight that person's, not their shortcomings and weaknesses, but to encourage them through pointing out the ways that God has uniquely gifted and used them. That is what respect is. You know, we, we uh, all tend to want to spend time, invest our time in whatever activity brings us positive affirmation. And now, and that works out differently for people. So for some people, they feel like they're getting affirming feedback when they go to the gym, right? They see things changing about them they like. They see the scale reads differently. They, and so what do they do? They spend more time at the gym. They take time to invest more time at the gym. Some, for some people, it's work. They see success at work. They get positive feedback from their customers and bosses. They see, they see positive feedback in their paycheck, and what, do that, what does that make them want to do? Invest more time in their work to continue to get that affirmative feedback. You do it in academics, by the way, right? It starts off at an early age. Well, I really like these smiley faces on this paper she puts. <laughs> I want to invest more time to make sure those keep coming. Uh, so you can do it in any area of life, but what's hard to admit is true in marriage. That, in other words, when we are not giving affirmative feedback to each other, it does not make us want to spend more time together. Because we don't feel like we're being valued. We don't feel like we're being respected. We don't feel like we're being honored. That we tend to invest time where we get affirming feedback. And the Bible says that should be happening in marriage. Now, but here's the real problem. Let's just, let's talk truthful. It's easy and lazy that once you're 20 years into marriage, you pretty much know someone. Although I still continue to throw my wife a few curveballs every now and then. But, but. But you pretty much know each other, and that means you know everyone's shortcomings, weaknesses, the annoying things they do. And the lazy, easy thing to do is just relate to them about those things. The harder work of marriage is for my wife to have to sit across the living room and think to herself, what about that doofus can I affirm today? What, what, what dignifying achievement, trait, characteristics can I go out of my way to praise him for today? Because it's easy for her to see my shortcomings and weaknesses. It's harder for us to sit across the room and to think about the things that are good, true, and worthy of praise. And, it's, and we tend to fall into default modes of just relating to each other, vocalizing things about shortcomings and weaknesses and not things that are good, true, and worthy of praise. But Paul says, if you're going to have a healthy marriage, there needs to be this giving of respect taking place. But there's a third thing that Paul says we need to be giving in marriage. Not only do we need to give love, not only do we need to give respect, but he also says we need to give up. (laughs) We need to give up. And he says that in really two ways. Notice he says, you need to give up being two and start being one. You need to give up who you want to be and try to follow God's designs for who he wants you to be together. Because he says there, the two become one 
flesh. You know, we even play this out in the marriage ceremony here in our traditions, where what happens at a wedding? But these individuals walk into a room separately, right? But then what happens? They leave together. A symbolism of the fact that they are now dying to their two-ness and being raised to this oneness. That God has joined something new together as they leave the room. And that's true, but it's harder in reality uh, than it's portrayed in ceremony, right? That we have to surrender our two-ness. And the fact is that we live in a culture that encourages us to pursue individuality, right? Pursue our independence. We live in a culture that says, whatever you do, be yourself, not whatever you do, die to yourself, okay? And this is hard to die to our two-ness for the sake of the oneness. But Paul says that's what you have to do. You have to give up. You know, when we, we, our honeymoon was a two-week road trip across America because there's nothing that brings the people together like long car rides. But, but I'll, I can still remember when we got to our new apartment in Los Angeles and we, we needed to go make the first grocery trip to fill the pantry up, you know. Uh, these are the kind of things you never predicted like before you got married that were going to happen. But it was an eventful moment of disagreement on the cereal aisle. The cereal aisle almost tanked our marriage from the get-go. Because my wife had grown up in a home where you buy the, you buy the cereal that's in the bag on the bottom. You buy generic brand. If you're going to get anything at all special, uh, it's going to be that thing on, on the bottom. And, and she was like, you know what? I'm getting that name brand cereal right there at our level. Because, you know, that, that's what we're going to be doing. My, you know, and, and she really had her heart set on Captain Crunch. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you here. Because she... She'd grown up in a home that says we don't do Captain Crunch, and she was going to rebel and make her own way in life, and she was going to do it right there on the cereal aisle. And I, was, and I was raised in a home where, like, look, we vote for Reagan, and we eat Raisin Bran, all right? That's the way we do it here, and that's the way we're going to raise our children to do it, all right? So there was a little stare down on the cereal aisle in a Vons in Los Angeles, if you've ever been out there. And, but yet, we sacrificed. I gave up Raisin Bran, she got Captain Crunch. <laughs> That's how that worked. <laughs> she doesn't eat Captain Crunch anymore, I promise. But the point is that you discover quickly <laughs> in marriage that you're no longer two. You're not buying cereal for one, <laughs> you're buying cereal for two. And it plays itself out in all kinds of ways where there has to now be sacrifice, deferment to the other, where you have to become one. But that also, when we say we're to give up on marriage, not only do we give up our individuality, our, rig, our rugged independence, but there's another sense in which the Bible tells us we need to give up on marriage, and that's this. We need to give up placing a burden on marriage it was never meant to bear. And that, what I mean by that is this, that many of the people in this room are probably like me, and I don't mean just hot and sweaty right now. Okay, many people in this room are a lot like me. You're probably raised a lot like me. Reagan, you know, raising brand religion, that kind of thing. But, but you, you were raised to, to envision a good life, a life of blessing, a life of joy. And you often subconsciously, without anybody ever saying, placed on marriage the, 
to be the burden of being the vehicle, the car that was going to get you there. That you looked at your spouse, and rightfully in many ways, but wrongfully probably in some ways, you looked at your spouse as the source of joy, blessing, and hope for the future. When the Bible and our hymn books tell us, right, that our spouse is not the fount of every blessing. Uh, that in other words, it's not unusual, especially for Christians, to place on their spouse and on their marriage a God-like burden. Be the source of goodness in my life. Be the source of hope in my life. Be the source of joy in my life. And when you do that, it both crushes your spouse and it crushes the marriage. Because the marriage was never meant to be God in your life. God is meant to be God in your life. Only he can be the source of joy and hope and blessing. And he often does it through your marriage, right? We get to experience joy, hope, and blessing and goodness through our marriage. But it comes to us from God. It doesn't come to us directly from our spouse. And so we idolize marriage, literally. We create an idol of it because we ask for it to do for us things only God was meant to do. And this, if we're honest, is why marriage frustrates us. It's because our spouse isn't God. (laughs) Our spouse isn't the one who can just continually and steadfastly and unwaveringly deliver joy, hope, and goodness in our lives. And that frustrates us. And I should say, it wouldn't be unusual also in this room for to be people on the other end of that spectrum who view marriage as the obstacle to the good life as getting in the way of a good life, as getting in the way of joy and goodness, instead of being a God-ordained instrument where he gives us and lets us experience joy and hope and goodness and blessing. And so we can idolize it, we can demonize it. But at the end of the day, marriage is a blessing. It's a God-ordained institution worthy of pursuit, but it's a garden. It's a garden that requires work, It's a garden that requires you to go out there after a long day when you really don't want to. And like a garden, if you ignore it, you'll wake up one day and look out the window and say, how did all these weeds get here? (laughs) Remember when we used to have fresh-grown tomatoes out there? And that's what marriage is like. Marriage requires us to give up. Now, just think, tomorrow when you go about town and people say, "How how was your church? You can say, well, the pastor told us to give up on marriage. And there you go. You can make conversation uh, with that. But marriage is neither meant to be the vehicle to goodness and blessing or the obstacle. God is the source from whom all blessings flow. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who's written so many wonderful things on love and relationships, points out this, that don't let your happiness depend on something you can lose. Don't let your happiness depend on something you can lose. If love is to be a blessing and not a misery, It must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. And so this morning, the Bible invites us to repent, repent of a few things, of neglecting our gardens, of idolizing and demonizing our garden of marriage, of failing to affirm and give ourselves to one another. But the Bible also calls us to believe in this crazy little thing called love. That it, it is the reason we can believe in it is because God is love. Love does exist in a very solid, absolute, eternal way because it's in the very nature of God 
and he gives himself to us. And of course, the wonderful good news of the gospel is this. Jesus has done all the work, right? Jesus has done all the sweaty work. All we get to do now is we get to go out into the garden and pick the roses and enjoy the sweet taste of the tomatoes. Because Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died, he's been raised to new life. He has done the work so that we can enjoy all the blessings that come from living in fellowship with him for all of eternity. We believe that there is a marriage that lasts and it is loving and it is characterized by giving. It's the relationship between Christ and his church, Paul says. And that relationship is the model of our, for our own. Pray with me.